I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Hello, Worminators. What up, my little squirms? You guys ready to get squirmy? Worminator. Worminator 2. The return of the Worminators. (laughs) You guys, we are getting into some dirt today. Some muddy, fertile dirt. (laughs) The kind of dirt that a worm would say... Oh my God, is this the fanciest buffet in Las Vegas? Let me tell you, if you had this dirt in your garden, you'd be growing tomatoes, a rhododendron. Perhaps a berry. Which berry? A straw? I would love that. A blue? A black? (laughs) Claire? What? What is this podcast? I would say it's two best friends shooting the shit for your enjoyment. And can I ask you something, Ashley? Of course. Maybe this is specific to us, but when you're with your friends, are you your nicest, most polite self? No, because I say my friends, they love me for my meanest self and they respect that about me. And in fact, they encourage that of me. I just want to mention that we read celebrity memoirs and that's what we're being mean about. <laughs> can I ask you something? Of course. Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. Do they just take people at face value? Do they go up to the Jeff Bezoses and the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world and just take their word for it? No, they ask questions. One thing journalists are very famous for, I'm not saying we are journalists. I am. Our inspirations, all great journalists. Okay, yes. Marie Colvin. Um, I don't even... She's like a war journalist. And I read a biography about her. She died at war. What if we died at the hands of one of these celebrity <laughs> memoirs? <laughs> Crushed by a pile of our own thoughts. <laughs> I actually have a degree from journalism school. A lot of people don't know that about me because I can't read, but... You're too busy asking questions That's to what I was going to say. That's what I learned at journalism school is journalists ask questions. And, and there's... A, there's a list of them. They say who, they say what, they say where, they say when, they say why. Sometimes they say how. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're asking here. And if you are not an inquisitive person, if you are somebody who takes things at face value, if you don't know about subtext, if you don't know about context, if you don't know about an unreliable narrator, then I recommend you take your ass back to AP literature in the 11th freaking grade and restudy up honeys because we are getting deep into these books and parsing them and thinking about them. So I have a thing I'd like to suggest. Sure. Okay. So this is a book club, mm. celebrity memoir book club in which we read the book so that you don't have to. And if you want to know strictly what is on the page and nothing else, you could read the book. <laughs> but if you want us to do all the heavy lifting and then some, where we not only read the book for you, but give you all the correct ideas about the book. Keep listening. Keep listening. Welcome. Ashley. Of course, Claire. <laughs> if you had been a celebrity. Yes. I'm not saying you can't be, but if you had been already. Uh-huh. And you were writing a memoir. Sure. What would the chapter of this week's memoir be? God, this week would be called, in the words of Katy Perry, hot and cold. Because I felt very both Physically hot and cold this week. I was going to say, are you just going to do something about the weather? Do you know what? I'm starting to notice a pattern in myself. There's a lot of highs. There's a lot of lows. Don't I always say to you, I think you should keep a journal to check in with your own emotions because you have this way of having like deep sadness and then looking back and be like, I think it was just my period. And I'm like, okay, but do you get your period two or three times a month? I should go to the doctor, perhaps. Journal. Paging doctor. Um, Anyway, I think I do feel, I I feel strongly. (laughs) I had a very fun week. I had some really fun days this week and some very boring days. And I think I did a good job of letting myself have boring days when I had too many fun days. And I said, Ashley, you've got to stay in. Claire, Mm -hmm. if you had to title your celebrity memoir book chapter this week, what would you call it? I think I would call it 
bet. Because <laughs> as you guys know, I quit my job. For some reason, we have like a three-week notice period as opposed to a two-week, which is really testing your girl. Um, I am out there technically logging in. I'm logging in twice a day just to get done any little itty bitty things. But there's this one woman who's kind of my enemy and she keeps sending me emails with like people CC'd and being like, hi, Claire, it would be great if you could get this done before your last day, blah, blah, blah. And it's just scheduling things. She could easily do this. I mean, it's not so much work that she couldn't do this. And I'd hardly call myself her assistant specifically. And so she just keeps following up and being like, I'd love for you to do this. I just want to be like, or what? You'll fire me. Is that what she'll do? Try me. Bet. <laughs> so it's been quite fun being there. I mean, I'm doing the little things. And if I like you, I'll get stuff done for you. But if I don't like you, what are you going to do to me? Who are you going to tell? Tell on me. You're going to go to the bosses and be like, Claire's not working. They're going to be like, yeah, she doesn't work here <laughs> anymore. And I'll just say this girl specifically has a very childish idea of what the bosses at my company are meant to be doing. She has this idea that they need to be worried about her feelings. And so I could see her reaching out to the, literally the heads of my company and being like, Claire won't answer my emails and they would literally be like yeah she quit why are you bothering us with this you're calling to tell us the quit girl is quitting Duh. the quit girl so I'm having a real I'm on top of the world I'm trying to bulk up on therapy right now because I won't be able to afford it once I leave but it's covered by insurance right now and it's funny because I have literally no problems because my big stressor is out the door it feels very the week before college or something like the summer after high school I'm in this no man's land of having almost no responsibility, but no true pressures yet. And I'm moving and grooving and living large. But also then I'm in therapy and she's like, any, any news? And I'm like, nope, still having a ball. I wonder if you could try to anticipate what your problems will be in a couple of weeks. I've been trying and we've been working on them, but it's hard say, to listen. I'm not stressed about it right now, but in a couple of weeks, I'll be jobless and aimless. <laughs> I will say one funny thing that came up in therapy was I was talking about how I'm trying to talk shit about people less. And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like I'll go to a party and my way of bonding with people is like, I'll talk shit. And she goes, oh, do you feel like it happens mostly when you're drinking a lot? And I was like, nope. <laughs> I actually don't drink a lot almost ever. And I'm like, this is a sober part of my personality that is just a core of who I am. And she was not expecting that. Let me tell you, she was ready to be like, well, maybe we should watch a drinking. And I was just like, no, it is deep in the bones of my personality. <laughs> anyway, should we get into this week's book? You guys... I'm going to talk a little shit about Ashley right now. As I just told you, I want to do. I was going to talk shit about myself. Okay. Do you want to take the lead then? I'll take the lead. <laughs> I'm a dumb, arrogant bitch. <laughs> That's exactly how I would describe you. I thought a 2011 Chris Jenner memoir. What could possibly be in there? Because I think I'm, I live in the present, you guys. Okay. I'm a very... As you just said, you have no ability to check in with patterns. You're like, was I depressed yesterday? I don't even remember. I'm this today. <laughs> and today I'm so happy. I'm out for 15 straight hours. How could I have been sad yesterday if today I'm all go? <laughs> Do you want to bring that to your therapist and see what she would say to me? Because I'm uninsured. <laughs> anyway... I thought a 2011 Chris Jenner memoir, what could be in there? Because Chris Jenner is famous now and I want to know what's going on inside of her head now. And I cannot fathom what interesting things could have happened to her before when I'm only thinking of her now. And people kept suggesting this book. They said, why won't you read Chris Jenner's book? And I said, why won't you read whatever pamphlet that could possibly be her life for the first 60 years? I mean, how could it possibly be interesting? And what I learned this week is that I am too dumb for my own 
self. So we found out that Kris Jenner's life is actually incredibly fascinating. Turns out she was involved in a little case called the O.J. Simpson trials. Ever heard of it? It turns out she knew O.J. Simpson. And Nicole Brown Simpson, the murdered one. The regular worms. The returning worms, you would know that you're normally squirming right into the section where we talk about what we know about the celebrity we're about to read about. Yes. But we feel that Kris Jenner and the Kardashian empire is so omnipresent that it would be a little ridiculous to waste our time talking about what we know about her. Because the question is, what didn't we know about her? Can I actually say something? Sure. I kind of knew not a lot about her. Okay. I mean, I knew a ton about her. She was a very constant presence in my mind. There was a lot of devil works hard, but Kris Jenner works harder going on in my head. But I didn't know anything about her personal life. Hence me thinking this book would be boring. I would actually call this book a very unique and impressive mashup of Leah Remini and Lynn Spears in that Lynn Spears was sort of an ever-present thought in my mind, but I knew nothing about her, but she has absolute insight to some of the most interesting and famous people in the world. Mm -hmm. Also, this book has just like a true crime twist right in the middle where I was like, holy shit. Do people know about this OJ Simpson thing? Have you guys heard of him? (laughs) I agree with you. We always say some people are interesting because they do interesting things. And then some people are interesting because they were in interesting situations. Yes. And I'd say what was solidified in my mind about Kris Jenner is she knows interesting people and is involved in interesting situations because she's often the mechanism behind it. It is not an accident. And I think something you've been saying all week is if it hadn't been for OJ, if it hadn't been for Robert Kardashian, if it hadn't been for the sex tape, all these things that you could say coincidentally lined up to make that family a part of the media landscape of today. Sure. Those were the literal and specific examples of how they got into our eyes. But it would have been anything. Kris Jenner would have masterminded anything to become who she is. And so she took what she was given, but she would have taken anything. And I don't think that those moments were the launch pads we view them as. Mm -hmm. I think that they were just key moments in history that you can point to and say, before we had Keeping Up with the Kardashians, where were they in pop culture? And those were two massive moments in pop culture that they were a part of. But I don't think that they were necessarily the leaping off points. I think that it was bullet points on their presentation to E saying, here are times that my family has been newsworthy. I mean, her group of friends, like I didn't know that Kathy Lee Gifford is one of the kids' godparents. I mean, she's in circles. She's been in the circles. So that's actually what I want to say. So here are some questions that I had about Chris and the Kardashians that I'd always kind of wondered about generally that were answered in this book. One of them was I remember the first time I heard about Kim Kardashian. Mm -hmm. I was in ninth grade, so this would have been 2010, 2011. I was driving around the car, and on the radio, they were talking about this sex tape that had been leaked. And the connection, which is so funny now, it wasn't Ray J, who was a celebrity in his own right. It was that the daughter was O.J. Simpson's attorney's daughter. Yeah. And I was confused because I'd grown up... I mean, I was a little young for the O.J. trials. I think I was two when it happened. But... I'd always known that OJ's famous lawyer was Johnny Cochran specifically because of the good Charlotte song lifestyles of the rich and famous. And so I was like, who is this side character? So the daughter of a paralegal had a sex tape and now everyone in America needs to know about it. So this book was very illuminating in just how tied to the story the Kardashians were, one. And then two, I'd always had this idea that like the Kardashians were just the average suburban family, their house in the early seasons of the show felt very upper middle class in America, but just middle class in LA. They felt very your average suburban family. 
this book, like you were saying, really revealed that if you had been looking for them, they had always been there. They were people you would have known in LA. In the way that Cara Delevingne, yeah. the average American goes, oh, there's a famous British person. Anyone in England goes, okay, this is one of the most well-connected women in the world who was always in the scene. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was like, why did they get a show? Because they were friends with everybody. Right. When they wanted a meeting with Ryan Seacrest, it wasn't hard for her to get a meeting with Ryan Seacrest. If I wanted a meeting with Ryan Seacrest, I would have to do a lot of sleeping bag in the street waiting to catch Ryan Seacrest. He would say, why is that girl in a sleeping bag? The homeless problem in LA has gotten out of control. And I would say, that's what I'm here to talk about, Ryan. (laughs) It really has. So those were my kind of two questions that I feel like this book and hopefully this podcast will illuminate for you guys. Oh, my questions were just where the fuck did Chris come from? And that's it. Well, let's get into it. So before we get into the book fully, I want to discuss the book jacket. A lot of times on the outside of a book, there are quotes from either other authors or from press praising the writing, praising the story, praising the characters, etc. The back of Chris Jenner's book has five quotes, four from her first four children, one from Lamar Odom, the Kim Kardashian quote, my mom is my best friend, blah, blah, blah. Courtney says, my mom amazes me every single day. Chloe says, my mother has always been such an inspiration to me. Lamar talks about how he's blessed to have her in his life. Rob's quote, my mom raised us to be very family oriented. Everything we do is as a family. Don't worry about all the superficial things going on around this world because at the end of the day, you have your family. That reads tough to me. (laughs) At no point is there a single positive or negative in that sentence. It really just is. What do I know about Kris Jenner? She's definitely in my family. Something about Kris Jenner, she's always been in my family. And when I think about my family, one of the people I think about is Kris Jenner, a member of my family. Now take the gun out of my face. (laughs) You got your quote. Leave me be. Don't hurt the socks. (laughs) R.I.P. to Rob Kardashian. I know he's not dead, but he's basically dead to her. I want to start before we get into the rest of this book. As you guys know, every celebrity has an introduction. They always need to prime you by talking about how they're going to talk about themselves. Yes. Even though they get 300 upwards pages of talking about themselves, they always are like, but before I talk about myself, let me first tell you how I would like to talk about myself. So here's the first sentence of the introduction of Chris Jenner's book. I know this sounds crazy, but this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Screaming through the streets of Paris in a chauffeur-driven Mercedes with my daughter, Kimberly, on our way to see the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. Did you know Louvre had an R in it? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I want to dissect this sentence pretty intensely if you'd give me that because I do think it does set the exact tone for the book and does perfectly embody Kris Jenner's values and who she is as a person she says she's all about family and then she also says she's all about success and hard work this is exactly where I'm supposed to be she is obsessed with getting to a place in life and that place she'll say is about family but truly it is about status it is about a class it is about an amount of money and a luxury lifestyle She has always thought that she deserved to have a certain amount of luxury in her life and she will do whatever it takes to get there through the streets of Paris with a chauffeur-driven Mercedes. It's interesting to me that when she says, where am I? First and foremost, the Mercedes chauffeur-driven. So already she hits you with the status symbols, with the commercial products that prove she is rich. And then who is she with? Her daughter, Kimberly, the most important daughter in the family. She doesn't say, this is where I've always supposed to be. It's Christmas morning. I'm with my children. This is where I've always supposed to be. I'm baking for everybody. Everyone's here. It's an Armenian Christmas. Not even I'm shopping for everybody. It's I'm living this extremely lavish moment with the one person in my life who got me this lavish moment. Kim. 
I also want to point out screaming through the streets of Paris. That is a very important word choice because their whole vibe is that they're crazy, wild, always all over the place, always screaming, so relatable in the way that they're just blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yeah, they're making a presence. They're not observing whatever. They are screaming. And I think that's a good point. Like she wants to be the spectacle. She wants to be this rich person in the center of all the attention. But so let's talk about where she comes from. Interestingly enough, she comes from a long line of matriarchal entrepreneurial women. She's a third generation girl boss. So Chris was born in 1955. Her grandmother, what does that put her at? 1910, 1915. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother, her husband cheated on her. She left him. And she says about her grandmother, my grandmother was my hero. She was born in Hope, Arkansas, and her first husband, my biological grandfather, cheated on her. So she packed up my mother and had the gumption to leave. She was very strong-willed and stubborn. She decided she didn't need a man, and she moved with her daughter to San Diego. She wasn't afraid to roll up her sleeves and get to work. So her mother is one of two women. Here's the story about a woman who leaves a man, says, I'll get a job myself and support the two women in my life, my two daughters. And then her mother gets married, has two daughters. It's Chris and Karen, two Ks. <laughs> and they live in San Diego. Her father is kind of a ne'er-do-well. He, he ends up leaving them. And her mother goes, great. She moves back with her parents and she opens up a candle shop with them and she starts this business that supports the two daughters. And it becomes very successful. They open up a second candle shop. I mean, they really do well for themselves. But I feel like that's pretty impressive for this history of women. There's never men in their lives or there are, but they're always coming and going. Like her grandmother got remarried. Her mother also gets remarried to this man. Okay, so here's something very interesting about the man her mom married. She does love him and he does come into their lives as a father figure, obviously a little bit later in her life. But so her mom married Joe and this stepdad stay together until he passes away when he's 78 or so. But she always refers to him by his full name. Harry Shannon. But she says she called him dad once they got married. Yes, but in this book, she calls him Harry Shannon, which is interesting to me. So her mom meets this man, Harry Shannon. He is an alcoholic. They're kind of hot and cold. And finally, she says, if you want to be with me, you better never drink again. And sure enough, he does. It's interesting to hear her depictions of her mother and her grandmother. They were all very close. She grew up with both of them because her grandmother and her mother had that business together. The The candelabra. And she talks about her mother. She taught us to be responsible for ourselves and that that was the way to overcome adversity. She taught us to just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and soldier on with a smile. We were going to have fun and things were going to be great. They might not be perfect and we might not have a dad, but life was just still fabulous. And then she goes, my mom didn't have a lot of money in those days, but her hair was always perfect. She was so beautiful and I adored and admired her. So there's this interesting run in her family of it doesn't matter what's happening behind the scenes. You put on a good face, you make it fucking work, and you better look beautiful. She says, it was always important to my grandmother and my mother that we looked our best. She always says that they had this incredible just to die for style. A just dash number two die number four dash style. So she grows up and it sounds like she has a pretty normal childhood life. You know what I mean? She doesn't get super into her childhood, but I do think it is important the relationship she had with her grandmother, who was a strong-willed woman, the relationship she had with her mother. I also want to point out really quick, when her mom goes off and marries Harry, she and her sister just stay with the grandparents for a week while they go get married. And then they return and she thinks, we realized, wow, we have a stepdad. Mm-hmm. Men, they're there, but they're not important. She does say though that Harry was a good guy. She goes, he treated us as if we were his own kids. He showed us unconditional love. He redefined for me what family means. He showed me what it meant to be a good husband and contributor. And he was a doer. She says, Harry taught me that if someone says no, you are talking to the wrong person. It's a mantra I've made my own. Just like my grandmother, Harry showed me how to do whatever it takes to get the job done and make a living. 
Yes. She also says right after this that at this point, her biological dad is not in her life at all. And Mm -hmm. again, it just is a factor of the situation. Men are just not that important. She says, my biological dad at that point was gone. He was a really good guy, but we had lost touch with him. Yeah, like he had moved across the country. He was on the East Coast and then the Midwest. Like You know how it is with parents. Sometimes you just lose touch. Sometimes they just forget your address and forgot to call for years. So by the time she graduates high school, she's at the end of her high school year and she goes, I always have had to have a plan. I believe in dreaming big, working hard and setting goals. At that age, most girls were thinking about the prom. I was thinking, fuck the prom. I want to get married and have six kids. And this is the first time of several times that she mentions this enormous goal she has to have six kids. Yeah, in those days, my idea of success was getting married and having babies. Six babies. She's obsessed with having six babies. I would like to take a moment now, actually, to talk okay. about the timeline of this book. Okay, so I have some theories that revolve around a tiny smudge across the exact dates of her birth. And I think that she got confused with what she has presented. I think that that happens a lot, especially when you get famous a little bit later you've decided now to change your birth year, but you forget to amend it in all places. (laughs) I also do think, as you guys are about to see, she leaves high school. I guess she's 17, 18 when she leaves high school. She starts dating much older men around the age of 17. And so I do think to go back and save the men who she wants to put in a favorable light, dates and times are changed. Yeah. And as Ashley said, she runs an empire, but who does their own calculations? Sometimes it adds up. Sometimes it'll be like a year two or two later, we ran into each other again. Then she'll be like, it was just one week later when we finally saw it. And you're like, was it a week or a year or two? So things get a little smushy. Bear with us. We've ironed it out as much as we could. We're using the context clues. We're using Wikipedia. We think we've gotten the truest timeline we can. But give us an inch, you know? <laughs> give us an inch for Chris has taken a mile. Listen, I'll say you're only as true as your published work. I think if we can't fact check against the literal book, what do we have? <laughs> so she's in high school. She's a senior. It doesn't sound like she's graduated yet. Her best friend was Debbie Mungle. That's a bad name. I was re- I just said Mungle out loud for the first time right now. And mm-hmm. holy shit, Mungle, that's tough. I hope we don't get canceled. <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope like the Mungle clan isn't listening right now. Our biggest fans, half of our Patreon are Mungles. I don't think we're going to get canceled for saying it's an ugly name. I hope we don't get canceled for saying that slur. <laughs> so her friend Debbie's mother is actually a business manager for Phil Rogers, a very professional, famous golfer, a very professional, famous golfer. He always tucks his top in. (laughs) He sends all of his emails saying circling back. (laughs) Debbie invites, I guess, a high school Chris to go to Hawaii and go into some tournament with them. And she's even like, I can't believe my parents said yes, but they were just like, whatever you want to do. So she goes out and she meets this guy, Anthony. She calls him Anthony. His name is actually Cesar Sanudo. We, because we don't know shit about golf, had a hard time recognizing how famous or good he was at golf. It seems not good because his Wikipedia page is small. So I feel like he was a professional golfer on the tour, but I don't think he ever really mustered up to anything. So they start dating and she's like, I can't believe my parents went along with it. But she says, everyone learned to love him, especially my grandmother. And in my family, if the matriarch says something is okay, then it is okay. And everyone falls in line. It is decided. They loved going to golf tournaments. And she's like, my parents loved golf. They loved that whole lifestyle. So when I ran off to golf tournaments with my girlfriend, Debbie, my mom just said, have fun. So I just think that it is interesting that already in her childhood with her grandmother, with her mother, there's this idea that daughters were tokens for status 
climbing. They were like happy to have their underage daughter date. This man was 29, 30 when they were dating. He was taking her all over the world. I mean, he was taking a minor, I guess eventually she turned 18, but a minor slash 18 year old girl all over the world. And even she knew it seemed inappropriate, but they were okay with it because they loved the lifestyle it brought for all of them. Mm -hmm. This idea that your daughter could go out and bring back stuff for your family. And they weren't struggling. Right. There were people who were already going to golf tournaments, but I think that's an interesting precedent to set in Chris's life. So she's traveling with him for a year. And then she goes, I convinced Anthony to let us live in his townhouse in Mission Beach, free of charge, of course. So she and Debbie are just living there while he travels and does his tours. They're just kind of partying, hanging out, chilling with their friends. And she says one day they went to the racetrack, the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club, where she used to go with her family. And she and her friends decided to have a fun day where they all dressed up and went Mm -hmm. to the track. And I really want to read what her outfit was. Sure. I was wearing a white pantsuit with a huge hat and sunglasses like some 1920s movie star. Around my neck was a gold necklace with a pendant that spelled out the words, oh, shit. I want that so badly. That's what I want to wear to my wedding. A white pantsuit and a gold necklace that says, oh, shit. (laughs) Anyway, so who does she meet here in the summer of her 18th year? Robert George Kardashian. So he sees her. He comes up and he hits on her. She turns him down. She's uninterested. He's 12 years older than her, but she says she dresses very suave and looks handsome. But he just keeps hounding her and keeps asking for her number and she won't give it to him. A week later, who should call her? And she says it's interesting he calls her because she's living at Anthony's house or Caesar's house, whoever you want to call him. What should we pick right now, Caesar or Anthony? Let's just call him Anthony because he's in the book as Anthony. And do you know something very interesting? I Googled him, Caesar Sanudo, and he has a child named Anthony. Oh, my God. Weird. It's weird that she picked this name. There's like a billion names up there. Yeah, she could have said, I mean, Caesar. She could have called him Chris. She could have called him something else. It's just hard to call him Caesar because every time she refers to him in the book, she says Anthony. So she's living with Anthony and she goes, I hadn't changed my number in the phone book yet. So he calls me and I'm like, how did you learn my number? And it turns out he had a friend who worked for the phone company and he had looked her up. And then this is where it gets crazy. He's calling her regularly two times a week, she says. And she's turning him down saying, I won't date you. She won't tell him that she has a boyfriend, though. Yes. But they also do have these phone conversations. So he calls twice a week. They're kind of getting to know each other a little bit over the phone only. And she refuses to date him. She mentions that she's going to be at this golf tournament coming up mm-hmm. where her boyfriend is playing in this tournament against Arnold Palmer, the man famously named after lemonade mixed with iced tea. His parents were smart. I'm going to name my chill aisle Coca-Cola. <laughs> Vanilla Coke, baby. So she's at this tournament to support her boyfriend. And who strolls up? Robert Kardashian. And he brings his friend from the phone company. And so she's like, oh, my God, is that your girlfriend? And he's like, no. And he's like, why won't you go out with me? And she's like, look, I'm engaged. <laughs> she's engaged. They get home. He won't stop calling her. He finally calls her and she agrees to go out with him. She's still engaged. And living at Anthony's house. Yeah. But she's like, fine, we can go on a date. Robert is living in L.A. He flies from L.A. to San Diego, where Chris lives, at her boyfriend's apartment, and takes her on a date. They go to the movies, and then they go back and start doing some hanky-panky in her bed, which presumably is also Anthony's bed. Yes. She says they did not get to the S-E-X, but things were getting hot and heavy. And who should walk in the front door? Anthony. How do they escape it? They don't. (laughs) She goes... We tried to run out the front door thinking that we could just like run fast enough. He wouldn't notice us, but he was coming in the front door. So, of course, they're face to face. Robert's standing there in his designer jeans, Gucci loafers and gorgeous Gucci sweater with an anchor knitted onto it. Robert screamed, don't touch the sweater. It's my brother's, which I'm sorry. But if you were going to have sex with a man and then you heard him scream, don't touch my sweater. It's my brother's. I would fucking unravel that bitch. 
I would unravel it like sweater song by Weezer. <laughs> so he runs out, running down the street. Chris jumps into her little Mazda, her red Mazda, picks up Robert. And Robert says, just take me to the airport. Robert says, when you get things straightened out with this guy or decide what you want to do, we'll talk. But that was scary. Ugh. Ugh. Be a man, Robert. So be a man, Anthony, because then she goes back. And I guess she tells Anthony that was just her friend. And that's good enough. They stay engaged. She's still talking to Robert on the phone regularly. Regularly. She's reconnected with her biological dad at this point. She's talking about Robert to her dad, even though she's still engaged to Anthony. And living with him. And then her biological dad gets into a terrible car crash and passes away. Yeah, with his girlfriend. The girlfriend's fine. And this actually begins a pattern in Chris's life where right before he went on this trip to Mexico where the car crash happened, he called Chris and said, let's get dinner or something. And she's like, I can't. I'm too busy. And then, of course, she never sees him again. Yeah. There will be echoes of this later. Her and Robert start talking again slowly. He buys a giant house in Beverly Hills and is like, look, I'm going to have this huge housewarming party. I want you to be my girlfriend for it. I want you to be my date. I've told everybody how wonderful you are. And she goes, "Okay, I'm coming. I'm calling it off with Anthony. I'll be your date to this party. Anthony has a tournament in Europe. And so she decides the best way to go about this would be to go to Europe with Anthony and dump him there. (laughs) Because they have friends who have rented some giant house in England. It's the British Open. And they're like, well, come stay at our house and get married here. And we'll just have this incredible European vacation. And she's like, okay, well, that does sound fun. But then we'll break up right after the fun part ends and I'll come home. She's planning to fly home from Europe straight to L.A. to go be Robert's date to this party. Anyway, Robert goes to pick her up at the LAX. And guess who never shows up? She didn't even have the heart to tell him she had not gotten on a plane from England. So he goes back. He's humiliated. For some reason, this idiot had told everybody he had a girlfriend. I mean, I don't know. Wait till you see her in the flash. She's been flaky. But he's so mad at her, right? He cries, she says. She comes home from Europe. She is so sick of Anthony. She doesn't know how to get out of it. And luckily, she catches Anthony cheating. She gets a call from a hotel. And it's a girl being like, hey, Anthony, where are we meeting next? And she uses this as an excuse to break up with Anthony. This is very funny. She says, I wasn't raised to be a victim. I was raised to be a strong, confident girl who knows when it's time to fold them. At this point, she had been leading Robert on for over a year. I mean, she literally says, I found myself thinking about how much I wish my dad had met Robert Kardashian. He had begun calling again. I didn't know what to do. I was still engaged to Anthony. I didn't know how to juggle the two. Juggle the two? You're engaged. You don't. You break up with somebody. So she breaks up with Anthony. She says he denied that he was cheating. And then she said, I don't really care. I'm out of here. I went to my mother's house and called Robert. (laughs) So she literally goes from one guy's house to the next. She goes to Robert's. And who's there when she lands at LAX? O.J. Simpson. Robert Kardashian was sitting in a green Mercedes waiting for me at the curb with OJ Simpson. He goes, this is OJ, my best friend. I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God. So she goes out one weekend and she's still living in San Diego. So she goes for the weekend. She says, I go for a second weekend. And then on the third weekend, I sit in his lap and he proposes to me. And she goes, no, I can't marry you. We just met. I think we should take some time. And he freaks out and is like, well, then it's over. Yeah, he does flip out about it. And she she doesn't even say that she needs time to get to know him. She just says, I'm 19 years old and I'm not ready to be engaged again. <laughs> He was angry and took serious issue with me for declining his marriage proposal. I returned to San Diego and decided that I was going to take control of my life. And I started by applying to American Airlines as a flight attendant. Yes. So she is broken up with Robert. I think they're still pretty much in touch. Yeah. She goes to flight attendant school and she's talking to him on the phone every day. And who does he start dating while she's in flight attendant school? Priscilla 
Presley. And this is where it gets back to what we were talking about because she goes, it was brutal because I kept seeing photos of them in the weekly tabloid magazines. Mm -hmm. So Robert Kardashian is already a fixture of the LA celebrity scene. I mean, Priscilla Presley, that's a big get. That's a big get. He had this big house in Beverly Hills with his brother. He was best friends with OJ Simpson. And it seems like his family was established as a rich Armenian family. Mm -hmm. He was part of his family's successful law firm. He came from money and they were part of the scene. Yes. So then she graduates flight attendant school and gets stationed in New York City. Luckily, Priscilla and Robert break up, even though Priscilla had at one point moved in. So within six weeks, he meets Priscilla. She moves in. What is move in? That's just a long sleepover. I think it's just a long sleepover. I don't think any of these people like have furniture. (laughs) (laughs) She just brought a bunch of underwear one week. And by the next week, she had moved out. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like throwing her underwear in the trash and bought new underwear somewhere else. So her and Robert start talking again. She's stationed in New York, but luckily the, the Montreal Olympics are happening and OJ is a commentator. I'm trying to read between the lines about what OJ and Robert's relationship was because it says they were friends, but then they lived together. And then Robert is like, great, I'm going to Montreal to support my friend OJ. And she says when OJ was playing for the Bills, he would yeah. go up to Buffalo all the time to watch him play. Daphne. Daphne's one of my best friends. She lives in Milwaukee. I visited her once since she moved there last year, but I'm not like going up for every weekend. Like it's weird, the relationship Robert and OJ... Robert has a real clingy personality, I think. I agree with that. But I also think money makes things very different. I agree. Because it does seem like they're just jet setting and hopping around all the time. The way that you say, I have a show. Do you want to come to my show? And then we'll hang out after. And I go, yes. They go, I'm going to Montreal. Do you want to come? And we'll hang out after. And he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And OJ is pretty high profile commentator for the Olympics at this point. That is going to be a fun hang after. Yeah. So he's going to Montreal to see his boyfriend, OJ, and in New York to see his girlfriend, Chris. And OJ also had commitments in New York. So they all got to New York. They picked Chris up in a limo and went to the plaza. And this is another point where she's like, I just, I was the luckiest girl in the world. I couldn't believe my eyes. I hadn't even ever been to New York before, let alone in a limo on my way to the plaza. And it's like a fucking same, dude. <laughs> so anyway, they leave and she becomes a flight attendant. It turns out she doesn't love anything that's not the high life. She lives in New York as a flight attendant for what we're calling a Janice Dickinson eternity. Six Six months. months. (laughs) And then she applies for it and somehow granted transfer to LA. They told her that only the senior flight attendants get LA. People are on a waiting list for 10 years to get moved to LA. She applies and starts praying and lighting candles and she gets it in months. Right away. So she moves to L.A. Her and Robert start dating immediately. She gets her own place at first. But within six months, I think she moves into his place. Yes. But then he finds God again and says, you can't live here. We can't even pork anymore. I don't even know if it's finding God again. I feel like he was punishing her because it sounds like he was always very religious. And then one day he just goes, this isn't what God wants. You have to get out of here. And they had already been having sex. So she has to just move out. It's so weird. She gets an apartment. It does feel very manipulative. And she feels quite resentful. She's like, I was living with him in this big, beautiful house. And I'm living in this ass apartment in the valley because I can't afford anything else. But I do think that part of it was almost like, let me show you what you get with me. And then go remember what you're like on your own. Very much reminding her her station, what she's bringing. And kind of forcing her into marriage. I do feel I like mean, it, it does work. It made her crave marriage because she was like, let me back into that big house where all the football players hang out. There's a party every night. I mean, it, it, yeah, it completely works because at this point now it's what, 77 and she's like, God, he proposed three weeks in and now where's the ring? Where is it? I want him to propose. And then he does. So now they're engaged and they turn it around into a wedding pretty quick because Chris don't fuck around. During this time before they get married, 
OJ is infatuated with a new girl. He's still married to his first wife, who I believe is named Marguerite. This girl is just barely 18 years old. So he goes to Chris and says, I need you to call this girl's house so that when her parents say who's calling, you can say Chris and then hand the phone to me and I'll talk to her. It was Nicole Brown, soon to be Nicole Brown Simpson. It's just an important little flag that this is the first time she hears this girl's name, the first time they really interact. So I looked it up. He had met her because she was a waitress at a restaurant he went to called Daisy. And she is 18 at this time. And Chris was very upset with OJ for dating a girl so young. And OJ's like, you're young. You just don't understand. And I do think it's a little ironic because at this point, Chris had met Robert when she was 18 and he was 12 years older than her. Yeah. And when she was 17, she was dating Caesar slash Anthony, who was also 12 or 13 years older than her. So she marries Robert. On her honeymoon, I find it very interesting because they go to Europe for two weeks. And she says, we were able to just get to know each other even better and relax, which I find very bizarre to say about your husband. It feels like you should know him pretty well before you get married. But I do think they have rich person syndrome where there's just always people around. This just goes to show that when she was marrying Robert Kardashian, she was marrying the lifestyle. When she talks about what she loved about growing up with him, it was that he gave her everything she wanted that they were always having parties, that they had these friends. And this is the beginning of that. And I do think it's interesting that they were on their honeymoon for the first time they were alone. And she was like, oh, so what do you do? Yeah. And she talks about that a lot in the early years of their marriage, that they did have this idyllic situation. They would just have people over. They all had tennis courts. They all had pools. They were always just at each other's houses playing tennis, hopping in the pool, barbecuing, garden parties. It was just a constant this weekend we're at this house, this weekend we're at this house. During the week, all the women are getting lunches and getting their nails done while the men are at work. And on the weekends, they all have these big family affairs. On their honeymoon, he says to her, I can give you a lot of material things, but I'm not going to give them to you all at once because too much too soon is not a good thing either. That's very weird. Yeah, very much was this relationship of, I don't think she knows it, but she clearly had father issues from being abandoned by her father. Now she was dating this man or married to this man who was 12 years older than her and acting like her father. That is a very bizarre thing to be worried about spoiling your wife. I know. And so then she gets a call from American Airlines being like, when are you coming back to work? And Robert was like, just tell them you're retired. And so she just never goes back. And then, of course, as soon as they get back from the honeymoon, it turns out she's pregnant. Nine months, two weeks and two days after their wedding, they gave birth to one only Courtney Kardashian. Yes. She decides that she wants to call her Courtney with a K. She loves the I don't know the vibe of it. She loves the double K situation. And she is infatuated with Courtney. She loves her. They buy this giant house on Tower Lane that was a two-story Cape Cod style house around 7,000 square feet. It had these levels in the back that led down to a pool house and a tennis court with a big grill that everyone came over for barbecues and tennis. So that was their lifestyle. And then very quickly, she gets pregnant with Kim. They're out on this ski trip. And this is an important ski trip because one is where she says Kim was conceived. And two, it was one of the first trips they took with OJ and Nicole. Cole, and she's like, Nicole was younger than me. I had a baby. I didn't think we'd get along, but they become very fast friends. And she talks about recognizing how much fun they had at a couple, but already OJ's obsessive tendencies. So she goes, even when she'd go to the bathroom, OJ would wonder aloud when she was going to come back. OJ, she'll be back in a minute. Just relax. I would laugh. Ha ha. Not funny. That's not funny anymore. So they, they get pregnant almost immediately. So Courtney was born in 79. Kim is born and 80. And she writes, from the moment she was born, Kimberly Kardashian was absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. 
I looked at her in the face and thought, she is so beautiful. She was just stunning from the beginning and had the most adorable personality. So she goes, now I was 24 and I had two babies and I had no idea it would be so hard. I do think that the fact that she is very notably being like, the first one, I was like, wow, I'm so blessed. The second one, I was like, holy fuck, she's beautiful. We've never seen anything like this. We'd already had a baby, so we didn't know babies could be so beautiful. And then we had this baby and this baby was so beautiful this baby showed us that babies can actually be beautiful with courtney we thought well they're always just pretty cute and this one we were like oh my god oh my god it's so funny you say that because then when they have chloe she goes this baby looked different <laughs> that's literally what she said so at this point she has two kids in rapid succession she goes we have this huge armenian family who was helping out all the time those years were fabulous she was like, I was all about being the perfect wife and mother from 1980 to 1983. I found so much joy in creating routines. And this is funny because it gets back to, you know, I talked about what she saw as motherhood from her mother and grandmother. But now that she's talking about motherhood in her own life, she goes, I loved everything about the life I had with Robert and our two children. And then this is a description of her life as a mom. Every morning after Robert went to work, I had the whole house to myself. We had amazing people working for us, not person, people. And I would make sure the house was picture perfect. I made breakfast for the babies. I played tennis with my friends. I met friends for lunch. I went shopping for the most adorable clothes for our two girls who were always perfectly groomed with big bows in their hair. Then I would come home and play with the babies some more. So picture perfect motherhood does involve about an hour a day with the babies. <laughs> it's very like English aristocracy. Bring the baby down for a show. Let me see what tricks it's learned. <laughs> I also want to point that she talks about how neat she was and how she loved, even though she had housekeepers, she liked cleaning up after the housekeepers. And she goes, funny enough, all my kids today do the same thing. The inside of Kimberly's refrigerator looks exactly like mine did 30 years ago. Everything is perfectly clean and organized. If you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, you know that the famously organized and neat one is Chloe. Chloe is famous for constructing an Oreo jar weekly. And for her to be like all of my kids, but specifically Kimberly. It's like, no, specifically Chloe, but you are so proud that Kim is like you. I know. They're having a wonderful time. She says it was quite the life. Everything was perfect, perfect, perfect until imperfections began creeping in. And this imperfection is severe psoriasis. <laughs> she goes, it began with something strange. In 1982, for some odd reason, my body broke out in this crazy, horrendous episode of psoriasis from head to toe. It was really life changing. It is hard when your whole body breaks you, but it just is funny that to juxtapose this, like next comes a murder. <laughs> yeah. And I get it because also her whole thing is being this beautiful, carefree trophy wife. Mm hmm who's just playing tennis and having a nice time. And now she has a skin condition. <laughs> no, and it is horrible, but I guess it clears up. She goes to the best doctor. She throws all the money at it. And then four years later, they have their third daughter, Chloe. And she talks about naming Chloe with a K and she goes, sure, it would be easy to do, but would it be fair to the child? I love how she knows these names might be abusive, but I also want to point out that seeing or Chloe and Courtney with the correct C's looks odd to the eye now. Like she really yeah. did change the culture. She really did. So she talks about naming Chloe with a K, really inventing this name. And she says, like her name, Chloe looked different. Yeah, she says different from everyone else in the family. And then she's like, but she was blonde, just like Rob's mother. And it's like Rob mother who dyed her hair blonde. Yeah, that's not real. But she then goes on to be like, she learned really fast that it wasn't easy being the third daughter. She was instantly funny. She knew how to get attention. She developed the most amazing personality and learned to be strong and take care of herself. Why weren't you taking care of her? Why was the baby taking care of herself? She says she really thought she was a dog. <laughs> she literally talked about her for two paragraphs and then she goes, yet something was missing, a boy. I think they really did not want Chloe there. She goes, I had Courtney. Everyone was excited about Courtney. Then I had Kimberly and everyone thought, oh, cute. Two little girls. Meanwhile, they all kept praying for a boy. Then came Chloe, another girl. And of course, everyone was still happy, but it felt like something was missing. <laughs> oh, God. They hate Chloe. 
So then, of course, they have a boy and everyone's so happy. I mean, he's from this Armenian family where obviously they're very old fashioned and that having a boy is the heir. They had no idea this boy would be such an absolute fucking dud. I know. It's so funny because when she had Robert, her mother-in-law came in with the most beautiful diamond and sapphire brooch you ever saw in your life, which had been handed down for generations. And she's laughing and she's like, I didn't get anything with Courtney, Chloe and Kim. And I'm like, wow, that is the most money Robert will ever bring to you in your life. <laughs> Robert got you that sapphire brooch and then he never paid out again. <laughs> I also want to point out at the birth of the boy specifically, of Robert specifically, they had like four sets of friends there in addition to a ton of family. She said one of them, Joyce Cranes, was listening at the door throughout the labor. Why aren't they ever alone together? It's so bizarre. They're obsessed with their friends. They are obsessed with their friends. They're always surrounded by people. And now it's February 1985 and OJ and Nicole are married. Seems like they're all very excited about it. They all know that OJ has a philandering problem, but they really believe that he loves Nicole so much and they're going to make this work. She was so happy during the first two kids. I think at this point she's feeling a little unfulfilled, as she says. And it's so funny because this is very pre-therapy. So it's like she doesn't have the language. And she's just like, it's weird. I had everything I could ever want in my life. I had four kids and a husband who bought me everything. And I had all these friends and all these parties. And yet I wasn't happy and nobody could ever understand why. And I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty obvious to me that you got married at 20. You shit out four kids in rapid succession. You're a trophy wife. It's not bizarre that you're unfulfilled. You married this man that stood in for your father. He's not particularly attractive, I'd say. It seems like he was nothing but a bag of money to you. And yeah, that doesn't fulfill people. Yeah, she talks about her friendships here. She and Nicole have become extremely close. They get matching boobs. They have a group of about like 10 friends and they're all just partying and having children. and Everything is perfect. And yet I was unhappy. I was selfish and restless and bored. I think she also has postpartum depression. I could see that. I think that popping out four kids like that into just this weird, confusing life where your sense of purpose is those kids and you have really no sense of self. I think it's easy to get a little lost in that. It's 1988. Everything was still right with the world. I had a wonderful husband and four gorgeous children. Everything was perfect. I was blessed in so many ways. Even my psoriasis was gone. But something was growing inside of me, something worse than the heartbreak of psoriasis. I had no idea that within a year I would come close to losing everything, including my mind, and what can only be described as my year from hell. So we're going to get through it, and then we'll get into our opinions. So according to Chris, and of course, keep that in mind, this is according, according to, Chris. to Chris. So she talks about how her feeling of emptiness and unfulfillment just gets worse and worse. She's no longer attracted to her husband. Her and her husband are drifting apart. She's talking to Nicole a lot at this time. So this is interesting because she's talking about her own marriage falling apart, and then in parallel... Her and Nicole are constantly going on walks where Nicole is also talking about how unhappy she is with OJ. I also want to point out, she says at this point, Nicole told her and it was trying to open up to her. As you're about to say, they both have this weird sense of tiptoeing around the issues because they are living these idyllic lives from the outside. And I don't think either of them want to rock the boat. But Nicole does try to open up to her about the fact that OJ at this point is physical with her mm -hmm. and is physically abusing her. But... Chris maintains that she had no idea what was going on, even though she says that Nicole had literally said he roughs me up sometime. He gets physical and was roughing her up, but she didn't go into much detail. And How it's much like, detail did you need? I don't know. I, I do think if you said that Mac was roughing you up, I'd, I'd be like, well, but she didn't say the she didn't say the ins and outs of it. And so she's just like, if I had any idea back then what I know now, like I had no idea she, it was abusive. I thought she was just upset about OJ's philandering ways and OJ's flirting, but they're always trying to work it out. And we always wanted the best for them. I really believe that Chris had kind of sold her soul to this life of partying. And the ticket was all these rich men. And as much as she was friends with Nicole, at the end of the day, the things her and Nicole bonded over, which was shopping and going on vacations, needed these rich people to be footing the bills. I think she like willfully did not hear 
what Nicole was saying. Like I they agree. were all these accessories and I just don't think she was a good enough. I mean, she wasn't a good friend to Nicole and I'm sorry. There was a million signs on this trip. They're in New York city. They talk about this trip where Nicole says that to her. They were all going to go out to dinner that night. And she's like suddenly out of the blue after we'd spent the whole day together. OJ comes out of their bedroom and goes, Nicole's not coming. She has the flu. And Chris is like, I don't know. That was so weird to me because I'd been with her all day and she seemed fine. And he goes, you can't go in and check on her. Don't go in there. She has the flu. Yeah. And OJ is very, very adamant that no one can go in there. And it's like, I don't know, man. I think anybody, one with a sense. Anyone who isn't actively trying to keep up their sunny, perfect life would have checked. I think she knew what was going on. She just willfully did not want to know. I don't think what happened was her fault. I want to clarify that. No, no, no. I don't think what happened was her fault either. But I'm saying that she could have known a little more had she pried. I think if Nicole was alive to this day, you could say Chris was not a good friend to her. Yeah. I believe that they were very close, but I do not think she was a good friend. Yeah. But Chris was going through her own thing at the time. She was feeling an extreme lack of passion in their relationship, and she decided that she needed to explore a little bit on her own, and she asked Robert for a separation. And basically, Robert goes, Armenians don't get separated. I think Chris left the house for a few days, and after a few days, Robert was like, come back here. And Chris goes, I believe today that if Robert had let me have a break and left me alone to get through whatever I was going through, if he had given me the break I'd asked for, I probably would have been over it in a week and back on track. I disagree wholeheartedly. I disagree wholeheartedly, too, and we'll get into that. But then she goes, what happened next was really odd. A good girl is about to go bad, really bad. I felt on some level like Satan had taken over my body and said, you're mine. So she has an affair. I don't even want to dignify it with like more than what it is. This idea that Satan got involved. You were a sexy 32-year-old with an older, unattractive husband. And fresh boobs twice over. Fresh boobs twice over. You had spent your young, hot 20s pushing out children, and you suddenly wanted to reclaim your youth. So she goes to a party at her friend's house. And who does she hook up with? But this hot personal trainer soccer player who, by the way, is 22. Yes. The exact age difference between her and Robert Kardashian and the exact age she was when she got married. I mean, it's very clear that she's reliving her youth through him. She's like reclaiming her sexuality and she's also taking over the position of power. Yeah. She says, I hadn't been kissed like that in 10 years and it made me feel young, attractive, sexy and alive. So here's the thing is I want to ask you, do you think that she romantically loved Robert Kardashian at any point. I think she... I think she had a familial love with him. Yes, as I agree they grew, 100%. As they grew a family together, I think that she had an appreciation and a respect in a way for him. I think she saw in him what she never got from her own father, which was like a good provider, a steady man. He was obviously obsessed with her. I think she found a lot of security in the fact that he had been hounding her from day one, so she'd never get abandoned right. by him. I think she had no passion for him, but she mistook his courtship as passion I mean she clearly was somebody who was down to cheat and yet she rebuffed him for two years or whatever because she wasn't attracted to him she was never physically attracted to him but I believe she was attracted to knowing OJ yeah even when her and Robert get divorced she stays in touch with OJ like they keep going on family vacation I mean I really think showing up to the airport with OJ like he was a bouquet of flowers was the right move on Robert Kardashian's part yeah. So now she's hooking up with this guy. I do want to say, though, so she hooks up with him once and then she doesn't know what to do. And she talks about being on a vacation and they were watching that movie with Diane Lane, Richard Gere and Olivier Martinez, Unfaithful, or in my case, Unfulfilled. And I'm like, actually, no, in your case, still unfaithful. Also unfaithful. You're also cheating. But she's like, I wanted the passion that they had. I had never had that. Yeah. So she starts having this affair with this guy. She calls him Ryan. His real name is Todd Wasserman. Yeah. She becomes basically addicted to him. She cannot get enough. You know how we always say on this podcast, our theory is you do not have that hot and heavy, toxic high school relationship. 
you will have it later. It always comes. You cannot avoid it. It's like a meteor. If you do not spend a year of your life obsessively texting somebody, obsessively stalking them down their house, calling each other, shirking every responsibility, friend and priority to try to bone them, it will come back to haunt you. So get it out now. every red flag, putting them above the more important people in your life. You need to do that when you're young and there isn't anybody that important in your life before you do it when you're married with four children. <laughs> but anyway, as I was going to say, is this part is very interesting because she really bops back and forth paragraph by paragraph. I want to read the intros to these two paragraphs that are next to each other. I wanted my kids to have a fantasy childhood. It was just so much fun being their mom. I would spend way too much time shopping for my girls and making sure they had matching dresses with big bows in their hair, blah, blah, blah. The next paragraph, now it was all about sex. One minute I was making brownies for my friends and having a family barbecue. The next I was in the middle of an insanely intense affair. Like this whole chapter really goes back and forth between her feelings of loving her children and wanting to be there for them and also being, if I don't fuck Ryan the next 10 minutes, I'll kill myself. But can I point out that being a mom to her was not spending time with her children and helping them with their homework. It was buying them dresses. Everything in her life is very selfish and like very superficial. And as what we would expect when she is shirking all responsibilities and disappearing to Studio City quite regularly, Robert begins to notice something's fishy. So he has her tailed and of course he finds out that That she's cheating on him. And it gets crazy. So he catches them at a diner and he storms out. So then they just go back to Todd's apartment in the valley. And then sure enough, Robert's there. And she literally goes, I didn't think he would keep coming to Todd's apartment. But he did. He just kept finding us there. And I was like, why did you keep going? So finally they have to get a divorce. It's 1889. 1889. (laughs) We've just come over on the Mayflower and the divorce was looming. (laughs) The coal was in the fireplace and the children were sat down with their tuberculosis bottles so they have to get a divorce and it's in this moment yes that she realizes she has nothing that there's a power imbalance she had had a credit card and a grocery store credit line he cuts them both she has literally not a dollar to her name so her friend candace garvey who's married to some famous baseball player that i don't give a fuck about yeah who cares has to loan her ten thousand dollars to get dennis wasser on the the divorce guy his daughter laura wasser has been kim's divorce attorney that's beautiful Did you ever see the movie A Marriage Story? No. Lorna Dern plays a character based on Laura Wasser. Oh, I love that for their family. Yeah. So everyone's upset with her. The whole crew kind of has to take sides. Even the people that are on her side are like, why did you do this? She literally won't stop. I mean, her life is falling apart. She has no money. Her friends are like bailing her out. She needs cash for pizza to feed her children. And she won't stop fucking Ryan. And this is, again, the language that's just like so old school, so bizarre. She goes, snap out of it. A lot of them said, you're being a bad girl. Now just cut it out. Like she's not a girl. She's a mother of four. So things get bad. Robert moves that way while they finalize the divorce. She stays in the house with the kids, but she's still having sex with Ryan. Her mother gets cancer. She makes the 22-year-old Ryan drive down to San Diego with her and like wait in the car while she goes to the hospital. For hours. She comes back. I mean, things are bad. They go on a vacation with a couple, the Garvey couple, like it's her and Robert, the way she used to always be going on these ski vacations. And of course, he goes and he pouts the whole time. But it's like, yeah, he's on this couple's vacation with people like 15 years older than him. He's a 22 year old fuck up. She's really trying to like resume this life and pretend this sounds like a good friend, this Candace Garvey who was like, okay, this is your boyfriend now. Now we go on trips with this one. This girl seems like she was really there for Chris. Well, this is interesting because this is the one couple where she didn't know them as a couple through Robert. She was friends with Candace. And then while she knew Candace, Candace got all her money by marrying Steve Garvey, famous baseball player. Interesting. So Candace's money, which came from Steve Garvey, was not 
filtered through the loyalties of Robert Kardashian. So she's sort of having the realization that she has torn her family to shreds. She ends it with Ryan. Because Ryan's cheating on her. She walks in and he's having sex with somebody else and he's in a panic. It doesn't sound like they end cold turkey, though. Like, it sounds like they're still every once in a while chatting. I think that around this time, she has the realization that this was maybe not the right choice. (laughs) So in June of 1990, Dennis went into court for some emergency relief. And soon I was getting a monthly allowance and I was able to pay my bills. I was far from whole again, but everything was going along okay. Robert and I shared visitation with the kids. But finally, she goes on a blind date, a lousy date that a friend talked me into. And she goes, I came home that night and decided I'm done going on dating. I have to prioritize my children. They are my future. But this is after June 1990. Yes. So for her benefit of the doubt, just to make it as fair to Chris Jenner as possible, we can say June 2nd, 1990, she goes on a bad blind date and decides to stop dating. She swears off dating in the summer of 1990. The next morning, I vowed to forget about dating and spend all of my time and energy on my new life with my new children. I made my kids lunches. I took them to school. I went to the dry cleaners. I did my errands. By the time 11 o'clock rolled around, I got a call from Candace Garvey. She goes, well, I'm up here in Alaska and the greatest thing happened. I'm here with a guy named Bruce Jenner. Do you know who Bruce Jenner is? She then insists that they have to go out on a date. Chris is like, no, 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 no. But when they come back from Alaska where they were filming something for TV, they end up all going on a date. Yes. And she says, I've given up. I just want to be a mom. And Candace is insistent that she goes out with Bruce Jenner. So I I guess based on when they got back from Alaska, I think she was working on being mother of the year for about a week. I think they go on their first date in September. It's a double date. It goes really well. The next day he calls her and is like, hey, do you want to come to Florida with me? I have a couple of professional golfing tournaments and like I have to do a sailboat race or something. And he's like, I'll get you your own hotel room. I'll pay for your ticket. I'll be very respectful. And she goes, okay. Once again, I don't know who's watching the four children. Yeah, she has four kids at this point. But she does just on her second date pick up and go on a trip with Bruce, now Caitlin. And that was the end of it. From then on, they were inseparable. It's about September on this time. They start dating. She says things get really serious really quickly. She goes, Bruce was absolutely endearing. I loved how honest and sincere he was. We had something huge in common. We both loved our children more than anything else. Yes, because at this point, they're coming to the marriage also so four kids. A real Brady Bunch sitch. What I want to say, Caitlyn Jenner yeah. is not a good father and never has been. All of those children have gone on the record being like, we met her four times in our life. She barely cared about us. I do think it was very hard for them that once she married Chris... That was the new family. And for Chris to go on and on about what a great father Caitlin was to all of their children. No, she wasn't. She was a horrible father to all the children she had up until this time. So later we'll talk about how Chris is always talking about how easygoing Caitlin was, how they could be convinced of anything pretty quickly. And I think it is not the fact that they were easygoing and nice. I think it's the fact that they were easygoing and didn't give a fuck. I also want to point out when this book came out, her and Caitlin are still together. Yes. So this is coming from a place of she's talking about her current husband. Yes. Anyway, they get together that September. By October, she's spending the holidays with Chris's kids. I think in February, Caitlin takes Robert Kardashian out to dinner and basically says, I'm going to marry Chris. We'll walk away from all the money, pay child support, but you can keep the house. The divorce is finalized in February. They move into a house together. February 10th, Caitlin proposes to Chris. And then by April... April 21st, they get married. So it was like the whole relationship was about seven months from first meeting to marriage. To this, I want to ask you once again, do you think Kris Jenner has ever been in love? Or do you think it's always been a situation of improved circumstances? I do believe she was in love with Caitlyn because Caitlyn was a downgrade circumstance-wise. She was renting a house. She did not have a good job. I think, I think they were in love, actually, at the time. But I also think she was primed to be in love with anybody who seemed willing to take on four kids. 
I think that too. I think that there was a lot of opportunity there because I think that Caitlyn at the time was a fixer upper. I think that yes, the money wasn't there in the same way that it was with Robert. It wasn't as blatant. I mean, we see as soon as they get married, Chris puts her boots on and turns that fucking career around and turns Caitlyn into a deeply profitable partner (laughs) profit making machine I mean I just do think that she never stopped to see anything out she never gave anything air to breathe and see if it had longevity I mean she wants a husband and she'll take anyone she just couldn't be alone she was never alone I mean she really did she went from her parents house to she moved into the golfer's house she was already engaged when she started dating Robert I mean she hadn't even broken up with Robert when she started dating Ryan and then I think things were still on and off with Ryan when she met Caitlin because there was a point where before they had even gotten engaged Ryan called and was like I can't believe you're dating Bruce Jenner blah 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 blah. let's get into how she made Caitlyn Jenner's career take off because I do want to give her credit she is a genius manager and I want to remind you guys that she got into this world first through her friend's mom who was a business manager so I do think that that showed her that it could be done and how possible it was especially for a woman when she marries Caitlyn and she sees how Caitlyn is doing giving these speeches and she's like she's giving these speeches people love it but we're living paycheck to paycheck she's not seeing the possibility she goes we're gonna take the moment that you shine brightest in your life and make sure no one will forget it there should be Bruce Jenner clothing Bruce Jenner exercise products Bruce Jenner endorsement deals Bruce Jenner vitamin supplements we'll build this house one speech and one endorsement at a time so basically what she does is she goes I created a team I got an assistant and a production company she's like we assembled a highlight reel of some of the greatest moments as an athlete a speaker and a product endorser we had press kits gorgeous business cards and the iconic images of Bruce crossing the finish line in a flash of red white and blue at the Olympic Games and she's like I sent this all out and I fucking made it happen and we just started going bigger and bigger and she's like we were doing giant speeches for these giant companies like Visa and MasterCard and Nike and stuff and she's like and then from there he started getting endorsement deals first Caitlin's doing these in infomercials one went for like 10 years it was like one of the biggest infomercials of all time then they started coming to them as a couple so now they're both doing these workout things and then she's like oh genius so they start doing infomercials for their own brand of workout super fit with chris and bruce jenner and she's like she really created the star that was bruce jenner enterprises this is also the first taste of pouring out their family for fame they also created a family fitness line a infomercial for like a family workout tape and they used the whole gang but it's true. She was able to fucking do it. She saw the raw potential. And, and that's when we say Chris Jenner would have made that family happen no matter who she got. I mean, she really could take any raw material and create a business. Yeah. Granted, I don't know that it, like one of the greatest athletes of all time. That's not any old raw material. But I do think we can say Khloe Kardashian was any old raw material and she made that bitch a denim superstar. So I also want to bring up the affair. Longtime listeners of the pods, the squirmiest of the worms know that I am absolutely positive that Khloe Kardashian's father is Alex Roldan. He was famously Kris Jenner's hairdresser. hairdresser at the time that Khloe was born. Yeah. They make the thing about how Khloe looks like Robert's mom. I don't buy it. I can see Robert's mom. They do not look alike. Not one bit. So my theory is we all know Chris was unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And Chris knows that she cannot get away in this book with pretending that she was not unfaithful. So instead of detailing the affairs over the years, she says after the four kids were out, after things had started to settle down and I was still unfulfilled, that's when I had this one big affair. I agree. I think she had to cop to something and she cops to it horribly. And that's why... She goes over the top being like, I was possessed by Satan. Everybody hated me. I did something horrible. I broke my family apart, blah, 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 blah. I take all the blame. Robert was so wonderful. She scapegoats herself 
And it's like, don't look at the paternity of Chloe. I think she was having affairs all the time. I think all of those groups were having a ton of affairs. They're all mothers and they're all homeowners. But when you think about it, they're our age and younger. Yeah. They are not like mature, hardened people. I feel like we think about someone who's 26 with three kids and you go, they're a mom. But when you think about what a 26 year old, the 26 year old is a fucking idiot. And you give them a pool and you give them boredom and tennis courts and trainers and there's just so many people around and there's so much partying and there's so much just like lifestyle shit I think that she was fucking a lot and we know she was never attracted to her husband one of her geniuses is that she is able to play the villain I was actually thinking about it you know that famous question where I think it's Barbara Walters who asks Kim like what is your talent Mm -hmm. and I'd say what the talent of the Kardashians is because first of all I do believe they're hard workers. Yeah. Most people, given what they were given, could not have created what they've created. I mean, it's a lot to keep your body looking like that all the time. Even if it is surgery, it's a lot to put your body through those surgeries all the time. They are constantly working. They're churning it out. They're going to the presses. I don't know if the two younger girls are working as hard. It does feel like it fell in their laps. But I do think Kim works hard. I've heard of people who work with her and they're like, she's on time. She works. She puts in the hours. And I think if you're like, what is their talent? Their talent is their ability to have a sense of self that is undilutable by the public. I mean, you and I know we're hardly in the public eye, but when people come at you, it is painful. And I think to have such a divide between how you feel about yourself versus how the public feels about you, that is a talent to have. But I would not say all of them have it because Robert and Chloe do not. No, they do not. But I do think like what Chris has and what Kim has and that whole famous conversation where like uh, Kylie's like, some people are meant to be famous. I'm just not. And Kim is like, I'm meant to be here. Mm -hmm. I do think what Kim and Chris have in common is their ability to take apart what they think of themselves and what the public thinks of them and just keep going and churning it out there. And I think you see that in the show where Chris regularly lets herself be the villain. And I think in this book where she publicly admits to this affair and is really like, I ruined my whole family. I ruined their lives. I will take that on. So nobody notices that Chloe's dad is somebody else. Totally. I completely agree with that. So Chris and Nicole had sort of become distant during her fallout and divorce with Robert because as we know, OJ was a big time cheater. He was very not faithful. And so Nicole definitely took offense to Chris's philandering. I also assume at that point, if she's with OJ, OJ is the king of the castle. OJ is obviously team Robert. Yes. So of course, Nicole is going to have to fall in line with OJ's loyalty. Plus she's, you know, really becoming a shell of herself because she's in a deeply abusive relationship. So then they sort of start to reconnect because OJ knows Caitlyn Jenner from golf tournaments, from just various sports stuff. They're big sports people. And OJ sort of calls and gives Caitlyn his blessing and says, you know what, if you want to be with Chris, that's cool. And so then they kind of re-become couples friends, OJ, Nicole, Chris, and Caitlyn. But things are very bad between Nicole and OJ, and they start kind of going on again, off again. They break up. They get back together. They're going through a divorce. Then they're kind of trying things out again. Nicole gets her own condo. And she and Chris are spending a ton of time together. They go on daily walks. When she is not with OJ, she's very suspicious that she's being stalked. Nicole is very worried that someone's been looking in her windows at night. She becomes a real nut about security. And I actually really want to read this part because Chris takes the time to mention how careful Nicole is about her security. Nicole was very careful about security. She never went in and out of her front door because her townhouse was on a busy street. She always drove into her back alley and straight into her garage, which was attached to her house, and then went into the house from there. The only time she ever used the front entrance was when she and I went on our runs and walks. When we left, she would put her key under a pot and then she would pick it up when we got back. Now, I'm no security expert, but I want to go out on a limb and say if you feel that the front of your house is too exposed and you, and that you feel also think that, that you're, you're being, being stalked, stalked. 
it maybe would be best to not leave through the front door, hide the key in plain sight, and then re-enter with that key. I mean... I do also say she, like, she never took the front door, except for when we went on our daily walks. And I was like, okay, that is once, once a day. A day. <laughs> so things with OJ and Nicole are on again, off again. At one point when they're off again... Chris, Nicole, and some of the girls go to Mexico, and OJ is flipping out, calling all of them the entire time, being like, where are you guys? What's going on? Who are you with? Yeah, he finds out that some guy is with them. Yeah. Just platonically, and he's, like, calling, like, crazy. Later, they're back together, and they all go to Mexico, and OJ is, I guess, while Nicole's in the bathroom flirting with someone, and Chris just flips the fuck out and is like this guy just can't help himself she's better off without him shortly after that they break up again and it becomes very clear that oj is the stalker but it's always confusing because it seems like even though they've broken up this one last time and chris is like i really saw now what nicole was saying about how it just wasn't working she seemed so much healthier and happier without him i was fully supportive of nicole being single she talks about going out to mexico and getting them both patio furniture her for her new house him for his old house and so it seems like they were friends. And I just want to point out, she goes, I thought they would have what me and Robert have, which is we could all be each other, a part of each other's lives, still be friends. And then she makes this comment about Nicole as a mother, which is less about Nicole and more I think about Chris. It's an interesting idea of what she thinks motherhood is. She goes, Nicole was such a good mom, a mom who wanted to decorate her own Christmas tree and put all the lights on the house herself. A mom who would go to the flower market once a week and always have fresh flowers everywhere. First of all, who else would decorate your Christmas tree? Like that is preposterous to me. I literally had to ask my boyfriend. I was like, did you guys decorate your own Christmas tree? Like, is my family weird? (laughs) That is the whole point is the decorations together. That's the family thing. And the idea of like fresh flowers being a marker of a good mom. I don't think kids give a fuck about fresh flowers. No. So at this point, Nicole and OJ seem pretty broken up for good. It's clear that OJ is a bit unhinged. It's becoming clear that he might be the stalker. Then the key that Nicole keeps under the pot is missing. And on one of their walks when things are bad... She says to Chris, he's going to kill me and he's going to get away with it. So this key is missing. Nicole calls Chris and said, somebody's taken my key. I think it was OJ. They just look through all of Nicole's stuff to see if maybe she just lost her key. Then one of their friends is dealing with some pretty bad drug stuff. The morally corrupt Faye Resnick. Was having drug problems. So they have an intervention for Faye while Nicole's dealing with, you know, all this other stuff. And then things just get very busy because they get Faye to agree to go to rehab under the condition that someone visits her every single day. So now they're all so busy trying to keep up their lives and also get down to rehab to visit Faye every day. So basically it's coming to a head. They've been doing it for a week. Nicole has a recital for one of her kids and is like, I can't go Saturday. Can you go for me, Chris? And Chris is like, of course. And then she's like, I need to tell you something. Do you have time to talk? And Chris is like, I just can't today. We can do it tomorrow. And Nicole's like, yeah, that's fine. We can just do it tomorrow. Not a big deal. Nicole goes to the recital. Chris goes and runs her errands. The next morning, she gets a call from Judy, Nicole's mother. Chris goes, I can't take it. I'm too busy. And she goes, get on the phone. It's an emergency. Oh, shit. I picked up the phone. Hello? Judy was hysterical. Nicole's been shot. She said, Nicole's been shot. So that's where we're leaving it today. This was a tragedy. That we're not excited that it happened. Mm -hmm. But what we are excited about is Chris. So (laughs) we're leaving it there. Tune in next week. Rate, review, subscribe. And we'll see you guys next week for the second half of Chris Jenner and all things Kardashian. I love you.